Um, so I'm super excited to get to share tonight um, in our Summer Psalters series. I will be in Psalm 103, and I invite you to go there now in your Bibles or your electronic device, whatever you use. Um, I really encourage you to take notes. Um, especially during when we're doing Bible teaching, uh, sometimes highlighting or circling, or uh, maybe you don't want to write in your Bible and you want to take notes, but there's a lot of amazing truths that come from this pulpit, and I encourage you to take, take a look at them after you leave here and reflect on them. So Psalm 103, we will be in. We're going to cover the whole thing today. So I'm going to dive right in. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is worship. Um, and th but that's not really my end goal. My end goal today is that I want to stir up worship today. Stir up worship in each and every one of you. That's my end goal as we look at this psalm today. So um, right off the top, I need to get something kind of out of the way. When I talk about worship... Am I talking about things that go beyond singing and music? Is worship more than that? Well, I think most of us can agree that it certainly, certainly is. And it's affirmed many places in scripture. One of the clearest to me is when Paul writes in Romans 12:1, he actually appeals that we present our bodies, meaning everything that we do, every aspect of our lives, that we would present them as a living sacrifice which is a very interesting phrase, this living sacrifice. And then he ends this verse by stating that this is a spiritual act of worship. When our whole lives are actually presented this way, uh, motivated by the mercies of God that we've received, it's an act of worship. Every aspect of your life can be an act of worship, if it's according to God's instructions and command and direction and leading. But Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he talks about the fact whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we can do to the glory of God. Even the most mundane, everyday tasks like eating and drinking, if they're done to the glory of God for his namesake, understanding that these are his provisions, it's an act of worship. So is worship bigger than singing? It certainly is. But I also want to address that it's not less than singing either. And so what, what do I mean by that? Well, there's something very unique about singing as an expression, this gift from our Father as an expression of worship. There's just something so unique. And, um, and it's not that it's more important than any of the other expressions. There's just something so unique and beautiful and wonderful about this expression, singing. And, and most times, especially here, it's accompanied by music, by instruments. But we have to be very careful of some dangers with this. Some extremes can come out of this. First one, people making too much of singing. Yes, it's unique and special, but people make too much of it. With those that do that, worship is actually the thing that you're worshiping and not God himself. When worship is the thing for you, 
The experience is worship, the band is worship, the set list is worship, the worship leader is worship, the movement is worship, um, the style is worshiped, the philosophy is worshiped, and so on. This extreme, this wrongful extreme, making something so good and making it the ultimate. Even a thing like worship, this is a wrongful extreme. And there was a ministry, a very like well-known ministry that, um, and they're a good ministry with good leaders. It's a prominent ministry. It's super helpful. Um, and to their, so what happened is this was a danger. They were walking into this danger of this becoming their extreme. So to their credit, what they did was they shut down, right? They didn't meet for a period of time. They didn't meet at all on the weekends. And they took time to collaborate and to evaluate and to pray. And coming out of that time of reflection, this song, which many of you may know, was written, and I want to read some of the lyrics of it to you. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way that things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things that I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. It's beautiful and, and, and such a good reminder. So that's one wrongful extreme. And then the other is to make too little of singing, which according to the scripture could be a wrongful reaction as well especially when we're currently looking in the book of Psalms, right? Many being instructed to the choir master to be played and to be sung together in assembly. In fact, the word psalm itself means sacred psalm or hymn. And these instructions, by the way, to the choir master are not restricted to the book of Psalms. In the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on which way you like to say it, the very last instruction in the book after chapter three is to the choir master to take that book or chapter three itself and put it to music and sing it in the assembly. And then Paul adding to this by saying that singing is a unique and wonderful expression of worship. He writes in Ephesians five that we to address one another in psalms and praise and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies <clears throat> to the Lord with all your heart. And just before that, in verse 18, like you see, where Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, and then verse 19 comes, which leads me to believe that if you're Spirit-filled, that one of the manifestations of when you're following God and loving God and just absolutely directing your life towards God, that worship will result in singing, will result in song. It'll like erupt out of you. It can be a sign and evidence. I never used to sing. I've always enjoyed music my, my whole life, but I just never sung, right? Which is probably why I'm so terribly bad at it, right? But, um, but since I've come to know Jesus and given my life to Jesus and I've laid all of my junk down, all of my burdens down, I can't help but sing. 
There's a song that I listen to all the time because it feels like he's singing straight from my heart. And he says, as long as I'm alive, I'm gonna be praising. As long as I'm alive, I'm gonna be shouting. There's one thing that I know deep down in my soul. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to sing. And then additionally, and kind of dramatically, in the book of Revelations, there's song after song that is mentioned sung by different people groups, uh, angelic groups. Depending upon how many or how you count in the book of Revelations, you'll find about 27 or thereabouts references to songs in it. Also, in the epistles, so the books that Paul has written, you'll come to places, some very well texts that many of you know off by heart, that many theologians and historians and church fathers actually suggest strongly that they were actually hymns. So in Philippians 2, for example, this great verse from 1 to 11 is what many consider a hymn, a hymn that was sung within the church when they gathered. And why? So they could remember. They could put it into words and remember it. And in 1 Corinthians 15, which it was too much to put up onto the screen, Um, It's talking about the resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus and how the resurrection is our resurrection. Much of that put to words, there was a hymn that was sung, that was a hymn that was sung traditionally in churches. So I give you all of this information to give you an understanding that we can make too much of singing or we can make too little of singing. It also is telling us today that worship is more than singing. Again, it's not less. There can be this over or under reaction. There's a lot in this, what it is and what it isn't. So with all of that in mind, I'm gonna talk to you about worship today. And in the process, hoping and praying to stir it up further in each and every one of your hearts. So today, as we look at Psalm 103, this is the question I want to answer. How do we worship? Let's pray. Father God, I ask now that you just use me to speak your words into their hearts, Father. Your word is extremely clear at declaring that you've created us as beings who worship. We all worship. So the question is, Father, what do we worship? Who do we worship? So Lord, help us understand this further, that we can make too much of a good thing, or we can uh, diminish a good thing. So Father, just direct us now. Help us today. Help us in this quest of understanding how to worship. Further us along, and in the process, I pray that we would stir up worship in this place today. In your house, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, how do we worship? Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So the first word is bless. Um, And you're going to see it six more times. But this first time, it comes as this intro instruction. We're called to bless the Lord. Well, what does that mean, right? We hear this word so much. Like it's hashtag blessed over everything, right? So what does the word bless mean? actually mean? And how can us, as limited beings, as finite beings, bless the infinite and the unlimited? What does it mean to us? 
If you do kind of a flyover of all 66 books of the Bible, with that one question in mind, how do I bless the Lord? You'll come up with three very common ways. Because I'm not going to tell you to worship, you need to bless the Lord without telling you how to do it, right? So, the first, by praising and acknowledging him. Well, praising and acknowledging what? God's character, God's deeds, God's nature, his word. We acknowledge and we praise. That's why it's so important when we worship through this expression of singing here, that we sing songs that are true about him and his nature and his character. Not just love songs that make us feel really, really good. We declare things that are true about God, true about us in him, and things that he's done for us, and things that are to come, and so on. So we can use this form, singing songs that are true about him, as one of the aspects of blessing. Another way that we'll see through all of the books is adoring and loving him. Like literally being affectionate towards him. Worship isn't simply meant to be an exercise or a part of a service. It's actually meant as an expression, an emotion. So where do you see some of the greatest expressions of worship around us? Well, the football stadiums, um, the hockey rinks, the concert halls, the lineup around the block for a new iPhone. Um, and I'm not down on any of those things. And to be honest, I'm not surprised by them either. If you really look around our city, you will see many worship expressions all around you. And why? Because we're created to worship. People have to, you have to worship. So you will worship something, anything. It can be yourself, it can be worship outside, something outside yourself, it can be something you've created. But for those of us who call God our God, we need to be careful not to fall into that same stream where we make a really good thing, like a good gift that we receive from him, an ultimate gift. And the third way that we can bless God is by exalting God. So what's the difference between exalting God and praising and acknowledging him? This is demonstrated in our yielding in submission to him. So to be clear, we bless God by exalting God, demonstrated by humbling ourselves in willful submission to him. So that's kind of what it means very quickly to bless God. So it starts to answer the question of how, but as we go further into this verse, when we see the phrase, oh my soul, bless the Lord, oh my soul. What is soul? What is the soul referred to? What, it, what is soul referring to? Well, most often when the Bible speaks and teaches about our soul, it's speaking of your entirety. Who you truly are and in fact are. And therefore, and so basically, we speak of a soul, we're speaking of no hiddenness. Like, all of it. Nothing hidden. And therefore, when we bless God with our soul in worship, we do so in our entirety. 
that there's no separate compartments, right, in worship, that we come to him with everything we've got. No, coming to God and blessing him and keeping certain things from him, parts of our lives from him, like as if we actually can do that, right? I'll worship God in my service, but maybe not in my relationships. I'll worship God in my parenting, but maybe not in how I do my job. In Deuteronomy 6, there's a text that speaks to this that Jesus refers to when he's asked what the greatest of all commandments is. And you'll read, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, with everything you got. Nothing hidden. Everything you got. So we bless God in our worship. That's the what. And we're to bless the Lord in our worship and the entirety of our being. That's the how, but why? And that's at the very end of the verse. The answer is because God is holy. Well, what does holy mean? Well, when it comes to God, it speaks to his distinctness. God is distinct. God as creator is distinct from creation, which is us. Therefore, because he is creator and everything else is creation, we should worship him. He is distinct and holy, and we are not. He is God, and we are not. And our challenge is, can we rest in that? Can we wait in that? Right? We worship God because he is holy. So the first thing we see in the text, like I've said, was that we are going to bless the Lord. Now, the second part coming up in the next verses is our number two reason. Worship. So remembering the Lord's benefits. So the first one, bless the Lord. And I kind of explained what that looks like. Now we're going to remember the Lord's benefits. So the starting point that David begins with, what David the writer of Psalms does now, is he gets more specific of answering how. Okay, so let's look at verses 2 to 5. And I want you to note the word who that comes up five times. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So this call to remember, to not forget, is actually a key aspect in our walk with God. The the discipline of remembering reminding of what God has done, who God is, who we are in God, what he's done, and not just for us, but the history of his people. It's a key element in our walk with him. For when we start to forget, we open up ourselves to all types of dangers, don't we? Foolish decisions, uh, fear, attack, defeat, That's why Moses in his farewell address to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the words that comes up in this book a lot, kind of a key word as you study it, is to remember or like don't forget. For example, in 6.12, he writes, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the the house of slavery. Don't forget what the Lord has done for you. 
right? And now building from that, what David does here is he reminds us of five benefits. Those who believe in God to the point that they've come to him, received him, a place of a relationship with him, he reminds us of five benefits that we need to remember. The first one. It'll be a scripture. The first one, he has forgiven all of our iniquities. All our sin, past, present, all, future. When we forget that, two things can happen. One, you fall back into this shame and this slavery Right? That's why Moses is telling them, don't forget who brought you out of slavery. Same call to us, don't forget. Or we'll fall back into the things that we were doing before. And then what happens? The shame, the guilt, the handcuffing. We need to remember that we have been set free. What we've been set free from and to. And then the other danger is you just give up. What's the point? I've done too much, I've said too much, I've made too many mistakes, there's just absolutely no point. Can I point out something huge to you today? David is writing this. David the adulterer, David the murderer, David the deceiver. When he recalls God's forgiveness, it's not a little whisper or a fading memory of forgiveness. It's like a shout of the soul. I'm forgiven. And it's so fitting here that it's the first benefit that he recalls. Because he's forgiven, he blesses the Father. Because he's forgiven, he worships. But also, the next line. Don't forget, he heals all of our diseases. Now this is a really big topic, but in the fullness of the scriptures and understanding the story of God specific to the people of Israel under the leadership of King David, this is not a promise that God will heal all our diseases here and now. But that being said, in the story of Israel, he did heal affirmities that had come as a result of willful sin and disobedience. As well in the ministry of Jesus, he, he healed many sicknesses and, and we've been told in the final, we've been promised, in the fullness of time, there'll be no pain, no sickness, no tears. But in the meantime, we're to pray, to petition for God, for, for healing the things that we deal with, things that affect us, affect our bodies, illnesses, diseases. We are to pray because God does continue to heal today. And we need to remember that. And the third thing we need to remember, he redeems our lives from the pit. This line means so much to me that I could do an entire message just on this one line. But I remember so clearly when he reached down and took me out of my pit. Or maybe I should say, when I finally let him. And there's a lot of discussion around this word, the pit. There's kind of this two-fold meaning that I could see in my studies. 
So our God can restore us now from situations that we're in that have brought us down or brought us low. And another, that death doesn't win, which we sing in our worship. We need to remember that death has lost its sting. It doesn't win. So this pit can be seen as a reference to the reality that our body will one day be laid in the grave, but for the believer, that is not our end. We need to remember that. And the fourth thing. He, who is God the Father, crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. The word crown is quite a beautiful word picture. Um, It's one that surrounds us completely, being placed upon us with steadfast love and mercy. Right? That he surrounds us completely with steadfast love and mercy. And the steadfast love reference comes up hundreds of times in the Bible to describe the way that God loves. His steadfast love is actionable, it's unfading, it's never tiring love, it's always constant. It continues to pursue us with affections from eternity past and eternity future. It cannot and will not fail. It cannot and it will not fail. And his mercy that we are crowned with as well is not some mere emotion, but an actionable compassion that takes into account our weaker condition and treats us with tenderness. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but it's a wondrous thing that we see here that he takes into consideration our place, our weaker condition, and treats us with tenderness. And the last thing that we're called to remember in verse 5, God satisfies us with good. This one, as I was studying, was probably the most convicting for me because I can become so enthralled, so excited, so entertained by so many things in this world. Um, It can be people, it can be things, sports, vacations, toys, uh, activities, you know. I can so easily get distracted, but never do any of them ever truly satisfy me, ever. So what we see here is the true mark of worship is a focus on satisfaction in God himself and the good that comes at his hand. But the ultimate good is actually God himself. Only God is good and he gives good and perfect gifts. Our challenge is to not make those gifts gooder than him, for a lack of a better word. God is the ultimate good with the result at the end of verse five that our youth is renewed like an eagle. Youth is a picture of strength. Whether we like it or not, it's just the way it is. Um, And an eagle is a symbol of soaring strength. So as believers, David's telling us here that we should be characterized by youthful hope and energy, this vibrant spirit, regardless of your years on earth, that even though our bodies are wasting away, that we can be renewed inwardly. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, my body is wasting away, but I am being renewed daily inwardly. 
that regardless of how old you are, you can have a youthful spirit. Like if you ever met a really awesome, fit, good-looking young person with no passion, just meh, just going through life. Well, here I've met people who are 80, 85, who are just loving Jesus, and there's this youthful spirit that just pours out of them, this passion and happiness. It just pours out everywhere they're going, making them soar like young eagles. Okay, so how? First, we bless. Number two, we remember his benefits. But how we worship continues now. Number three, understanding that God's anger is limited. Let's look at verses 6 to 12. These verses are wonderful. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to, the, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions from us. So I said that number three is understanding that God's anger is limited. This one confuses, it confuses me. How do we worship with this understanding? How is God's anger limited? What is it limited by? Well, if we look at verse 8 again, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What is God's anger limited by? His mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love. Which realizes itself in verse 10 when it says, it does not, He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's a beautiful statement nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, don't wrongfully conclude that God ignores his anger or his justice or his righteousness. That's not what this is saying either. God is good and works in righteousness and justice, and we see this in places like verse 6, like he is angry at sin, and it must be dealt with. It's an expression, an expression of who he is. He, He must. He can't ignore it. So how do we reconcile this then, right? If this is who God is and this is what is taking place, how do we reconcile this together? So I'm going to explain this with a person, like just flipping it around on myself. Outside of a relationship with him, if I'm living in rebellion towards God, living in sin and defiance, God's anger is hot against me outside of a relationship, living in defiance, he burns hot against me. Therefore, I'm living under his wrath and his justice and his righteousness, needing to be poured out on me. And rightly so, because he is God and I am not. And I'm just waving my hand in his face. But one day, I come to him in response to his move in my life, in repentance, and in confession. And who am I coming to? I'm coming to a God that's not only a God of justice and righteousness, but a God abounding in steadfast love, mercy, and grace. 
And that anger that is on me, it's stopped, it's limited, butting up against his compassion and mercy and everlasting love. And not that somehow God's anger and his wrath and his justice live in some sort of like conflict with his mercy and compassion and love. They live in harmony. But when my sin is open confession to him with the proper right justice upon my sin butts up against those, it's stopped by his love and grace and mercy. His anger is limited by his love. So how much love? Well, it says, well, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's a great statement. I have two images here. Um, and I'm sure you've seen millions of these before, of stars and different things in the galaxies and the cosmos. But this first one here is taken from the Hubble telescope, okay, so in space. And the fur, it's got, it has a half a million stars in one wild space in, pl in space. It's beautiful, and it's honestly like so hard for me to wrap my head around that. This teeny tiny little tucked away place, half a million stars. And then the next one is also from the Hubble telescope, over 30 years of different things in the cosmos, some top pictures that have been taken. And as I read this article, what went with this image, it said that this only represents one seventeenth million of the cosmos. And that's a guesstimate at best, like it, really. And I so believe that God uses the cosmos, these things that we can't wrap our head around to display his love for us. Have you ever looked at like the North Shore Mountains or really looked at the sky? The Northern Lights, have you witnessed the Northern Lights? Go to Whistler or Banff and look over the water. Look for the Big Dipper with your kids in the sky seen a shooting star. I believe it's God's love depiction. As high as the heavens or above the earth is how much he loves you. So when we bring our sin and our transgression before God, repenting and confessing, what does he do with them? He removes them as far as the east is from the west. Do you know, hopefully you know this, that if you start going east, you'll forever go east? Like, you might end up in the west, but you're still going east. I actually don't know which way is east, so just pick which one. Um, same with west. If I start going the opposite way now and I start going west, I'll go forever and ever and ever going west. That's how far your sins are removed. That's how far. So our blessing and worship of God continues. My fourth point we're going to see in verses 13 to 19. By realizing his compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place no, is no more. 
But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenants and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So I said the fourth way is by realizing his compassion. So earlier, I stated that the number one reason for us to worship comes from the fact that he is God and we are not. The problem is we forget that, don't we? We forget that God is God and we are not. We make ourselves God, we make people God, we make things God, but here's the beauty of these verses. He never forgets that he is God and you are not. And what does that lead to? In verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. And what does this lead to? What does this manifest out of? As a father, verse 13, shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In other words, he's a really good daddy. Like a really, really good, compassionate daddy. He's like a dad dealing with a four-year-old that knows that they're not going to get on their case because the four-year-old can't catch a ball yet. Like a good dad that will understand that a six-year-old might take some time to learn his nine times table. Or a good dad that stays in bed with the kid just a little bit longer because there might be a boogeyman in the closet. Understanding those things, see, he never forgets. He never forgets who he is and who we are. And he responds to us understanding who he is and who we are with compassion. He knows everything about you, every secret you've never told, everything that you think, everything, no hiddenness. He knows you. And he treats you with compassion. Even though we forget many times that we aren't God, God knows we're like flowers and grass that come and go, and he rules over it all, all of it. He doesn't forget that we're frail and weak and prone to failure. Because of his steadfast love, he doesn't respond in anger, but compassion, actionable compassion that takes into account our weaker condition like I said before, leading to tender treatment. It's, it's wonderful. And the worship team can start to come up. But this is what I wanna remind you tonight, church. As you look at verse 13, that there was one child, an only begotten child, that with justice and anger and wrath, his child Jesus placing all on him that was deservedly ours, the son doing so willingly with that joy, the joy that was set before him. And why? So we would never have to be those who had to, those things placed on us ever, ever again. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Psalm 103 only makes sense to me in light of Jesus. 
Why does God not visit our sin and our inequity as it deserves to be visited? Why? Jesus. His son for us. Am I stirring up any worship? I hope so. So my final point that comes out of the last couple verses is contemplating that we are not alone in worship. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We are not alone in worship. As David brings this hymn of praise to a close, he turns our attention, he turns our attention to the company with which he worships, the angels who serve God of the Most High, having might and power, use their strength to do God's word and obey God's commands, devoted and, and bless the Lord with their obedience. Then there's the hosts and the ministers who delight in the manifest of God's glory and fulfilling his purposes. Then all his work, all the work of God's hand. So all creation worships him, which he rules over, all of it, his dominion. So when I think of all created order, where God's purpose is fulfilled by the very existence of what he created, birds being birds, flowers being flowers, dirt being dirt, and I learned something. I learned that God's glory is manifested and magnified when I am as I was created to be. Faithful, worshipful, obedient, satisfied with God's will and call on my life. We are not alone in worship. So the psalm ends how it begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And just to remind us today, by remembering his benefits, understanding God's anger is limited, realizing the Lord's compassion by contemplating that we are not alone in worship. So would you rise with me, church, and worship our amazing and marvelous God together.